rights of the unborn is what God would call us to. So I pray that you're challenged by that. Um, I encourage you to grab one of those uh, change bins uh, for Karenet, but I'll just put change in there. Put a couple hundreds in there. I don't care. Put some, something in there. Let's stand behind this ministry. Amen. They should never be lacking the resources to do what God has called them to do. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I want to encourage you every Sunday, especially through this series, uh, to bring a paper Bible with you. I know a lot of us have our Bibles here, but I want to encourage you uh, next week as you come, bring a paper Bible, all right? Because I want you to be able to highlight things. I want you to be able to circle things, underline things, okay? Those of you that are in community groups, you got a uh, journal on just the book of Acts. Bring that on a Sunday morning, okay? So that you can take notes and follow along. All of you should have received a note sheet, hopefully coming through the doors today. And I want to encourage you uh, to have that ready. As we make our way through Acts chapter 1, next week we'll be in Acts chapter 2 and talking about Pentecost. And so I just want to challenge you uh, as we're walking through this, let's be praying and asking the Lord to fill us afresh and anew with his Holy Spirit. Amen. That he would give us a fresh anointing for this season that we're walking through, that we would uh, surrender every area of our lives over to the Spirit's direction. Because here's the reality, we can read the Word of God, and we can hear the Word of God, and we can even allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, but understand we also need a willing heart to obey what the Spirit is speaking, amen? And so maybe get a little more light in the house so you guys can follow along on those those note sheets. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, we're going to go back to the same passage we were in last week, Pastor Sal shared on what it means to be a witness for the gospel, to, to be an evangelist, and uh, this passage is, is just so rich that I, I don't feel like we can move on right away, okay? Next week, we're going to go in Acts chapter 2, but I want to pick it up again in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. It says, and while staying with them, this is Jesus here, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I want you to think about this. This is the resurrected Jesus. He's appearing to his disciples. He's teaching them about the kingdom. This is before his ascension into heaven. But I want you to see this question that comes from the disciples this morning. Because in the midst of all that's going on, it seems to be kind of a strange question given the context. And really, it exposes the disciples' inner agenda, if you will. It tells us what's important to them. As they ask about the kingdom of God, they are looking back and they are hoping that Jesus would reestablish a previous glory, a former glory, and yet Jesus is looking forward to an even more glorious future. I don't know how long they were holding back from asking Jesus this question, but eventually they can't hold it in and somebody blurted it out. We don't know who said it, right? But somebody did. understand this, that just because we say a truth doesn't mean that truth is heard, right? Parents, you know that too, right? Just because you say something doesn't mean that what you said was actually heard or understood. And so even after we communicate something, we need to be able to draw out the perception of what we said. That's one of the purposes of our community groups here, right? To get together and say, what is God really saying through this passage? How do I understand it? How do I apply it to 
but a good teacher will ask this, do you understand what I just said? And Jesus was so good at doing this. When you look at his teaching throughout the gospel, he would always follow truth with an action, right? Because he understood that in learning, hearing and doing can be separate in our lives. And so he's teaching on the kingdom of God. He's teaching on the power to live in that kingdom. And the the disciples at this moment are confronted with just how dependent they are on on God to lead them through this season. But, But Jesus was teaching something and they completely miss it. They did not understand what was about to happen to them and through them by the Holy Spirit. And this question exposes really how little they had been listening. How little they had been listening through his ministry and even now during this special time as he is preparing them for Pentecost. I mean, just look at the way they throw it back on Jesus. Will you, Lord, will you at this time restore what patience Jesus has with his disciples? You see, their desire in this moment is exposed. They're longing for the physical kingdom of God with Christ reigning on the throne on earth. After all, this is what the rabbis had taught, and and it seemed clear in the scriptures. Yes, they had learned of the suffering servant, but now they understood how that had been fulfilled in Jesus as he dealt with the sin of the world on the cross. But right away, they moved into the next prophecies, which were all about the reign of the Messiah on earth. And in their mind, they're thinking that this meant something like a second after all, Messiah was referred to as the son of David, right? And so the disciples' question was based on some strong presuppositions that they had wrestled with all throughout Jesus' ministry. I think some background might help us a little bit here. Because this idea of, of God being the king of Israel, it goes back to early history of Exodus. Exodus fifteen eighteen, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So God's chosen people so set on their thinking about this kingdom on earth and what it was going to look like. Because the closest they ever got to that kind of kingdom was when David sat on the throne. But understand that didn't last long, right? Soon the kingdom was divided. Israel lost its political power. It lost its independence. And so as they're thinking about the kingdom of God, I want you to understand they are envisioning that this would be some kind of return to the time when David sat on the throne. The time of Israel's why there were so many questions by the leaders of Israel about whether Jesus was a, a true son of David, right? They wanted to know if he's going to take the throne. Because this was the expectation of Messiah, that he would return Israel to a place of grandeur, a place of power, a place of political freedom. The peace that he was to bring was understood to be the result of victory over other nations. And so they have this idea of Jesus reigning over Israel and Israel being this military power in the world, that's their vision, and that's their hope for the kingdom of God. You see it right away with James and John, right? They're arguing over who's going to sit at his right and who's going to sit at his left, right? When the Messiah comes to full power, Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking, right? At that time, they didn't know what was coming. And here in the beginning of Acts, they still don't understand what the kingdom of God is all about. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There are some that would say that Judas may have been trying to force Jesus' hand. That the reason that he betrayed Jesus in the garden was to try to get the Sanhedrin to arrest him. Because Judas had this expectation maybe that if Jesus was just pushed a little bit more, 
If he really is Messiah, he's going to call down legions of angels from heaven, and he's going to begin this revolt that would cause Israel to rise to power again. But we know Judas' plan didn't work like that, at least not the way that he expected. Because he had put his hope in a, in a very different kind of Messiah than the one that Jesus came to be. Judas, the betrayer, didn't study the prophets very well. Jesus was to be Israel's suffering servant, and so James and John are arguing over who would be the greatest, and Judas is looking for a political victory, if you will, but they weren't the only ones. The the other disciples were no clearer in their expectations. For three years, Jesus had been explaining the nature of the kingdom to them, and yet the disciples joined the crowds in singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom. Father David, Hosanna, the highest, but the problem is their idea of the highest was far too low. So there's this great difference between Jesus' anticipation for the future and that of the disciples, and, and their question shows this very clearly. Even his teaching here about his return and the power of the Holy Spirit is twisted to work with their idea of the kingdom. They're still not on Jesus' agenda. Instead, they're asking him to meet their agenda, and they're very religious about it. But Jesus had taught them there would be a long time waiting. Luke 19, verse 11, this is what Luke writes here. Luke 19, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear They thought something's going to happen immediately. And Jesus goes on to tell a parable of stewards who were uh, entrusted with money to invest. And the master goes away for a long time, and he's given a kingdom, and he returns as a king to see how his servants have handled what was entrusted to them. And the point of the parable is that Jesus is leaving for a time, and we as his servants are expected to be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us while he's away. There's a similar parable in Matthew 25 where the master's going away on a journey, and it even says that he doesn't return for a long time. In Mark 13, he told his disciples that the kingdom would be like a master leaving on a journey, and we should be like a doorkeeper watching for his eventual return. Matthew 25, Jesus describes the kingdom like a bride waiting for her groom, not knowing when he will come for her. And in that parable, he comes at midnight. And some of those who are waiting are not prepared because they weren't expecting it to take so long. Over and over again, Jesus tells them that no one knows the time of his return. He makes it clear that only the Father knows the time that he would return. And with all of these expectations, right, how in the world did the disciples bring up this question? I believe it's because they're religious. We are always looking for a physical answer, a physical answer to the condition want a physical answer, right? And so we, we look to new leaders, we look to new laws, we look to new legislation. We'll try to do anything other than changing our own hearts, right? You see, the physical kingdom that the disciples were asking about is coming one day, but the kingdom of Jesus was already there. The kingdom of Jesus is already here. Jesus tells them, you can't see this kingdom with your eyes because it, it comes within. And, and really for us, church, that is the answer to our lack of commitment so often in life, or 
our lack of, of joy in life, right? Because we're asking the same question, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time, Lord, that you meet my expectations? But understand, we don't need a change of circumstances. What we really need is a change of heart. We don't need a change of circumstances. What we really need is, is a change of heart. The disciples had been influenced by, by the wrong interpretation, right? And, and much of the church today, sadly, has been influenced by the wrong interpretation of the kingdom of God and what it actually means to live as a believer, okay? Much of the church has been influenced by the wrong interpretation. And, and it wasn't like Jesus hadn't tried to correct them. He, he tried to correct their thinking numerous times, but they had come to an interpretation that was comfortable to believe, right? And, and I would suggest that we're not much different today. Because we can listen to a message. We can hear an interpretation of a passage sometimes in Scripture. We can cling to an idea in spite of the fact that the context and the scripture seem to contradict that idea, right? But I like it. It seems comfortable to me. I like that idea, right? Too many people, too many Christians are okay hanging on to ideas that scripture seems to contradict because it makes them feel good. It sounds good, Pastor. It gives me peace. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Through the years, there have been many predictions of when Christ would return. Books have been written. I remember there was a book written back in the 80s. It was, it was 88 reasons why the rapture would take place in 1988, right? If you want a copy, I'll give you a free one, okay? Listen, if anyone tells you they know when Jesus is returning, simply tell them you're being unscriptural, right? You're being unscriptural. That is not to say that we shouldn't live with an expectation of Jesus' return. That's a healthy way to live, right? And, and, and the reality is that today might be our last. And so we ought to, to do what we know to do and not put it off, church. We, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And James tells us, man, we don't need to know. Needed to know, Jesus would have told us. But there is a day that is fixed. There, there is a day that is set by God's own authority, and, and I trust that He's picked the perfect time. I trust that the God of eternity knows the perfect time, and I don't have to worry about it. I just need to be about the Father's business today. You see, Jesus' response to His disciples is filled with precaution, but also a prescription, if you will, for supernatural power. He tells them very clearly what is not their business and what is. And here's the secret of guidance. If you want to know the Lord's will and you want to walk in, in the power of God, here's the secret. Do what he reveals to you. Don't worry about what you don't know. Do what he reveals to you, right? It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. In other words, it doesn't belong to you to know. It's not your concern. It, it's not our responsibility, listen to me, to know times or seasons. To know the times or seasons. There's two Greek words here. They are chronos and kairos. Chronos is chronological time. You look at your watch to understand chronos, right? It's a length of time in minutes and hours. But kairos is, is, is a specific time. It's a specific opportunity. And so you could say that, that chronos marks the quantity of time and Kairos speaks to quality. Well, 
What's the point that Jesus is making here? The point for the disciples and for us is this, that both of these times, Kronos and Kairos, are under God's control. He knows how long we need to wait, and he knows at what point that thing will take place. Jesus had already made it clear whom and what to expect, and so he reacts very strongly to this demand to know the exact time of things, because he knows that his kingdom people need to be those who could wait for his best and wait on his schedule. And here's what you can know today about the Lord. He's always on time. He's always on time, and he's always in time. Okay, he is never late, and so chronos or or waiting is necessary for us sometimes, right? It, it's not for him. We need the time to get ready for what he's going to do. I'm sure every one of us has grown impatient waiting at times, right? Because we want everything yesterday, right? Why couldn't you have done it yesterday, right? We get stuck in our problems, and we, we were in the problem for a while, and we finally think, maybe I ought to pray about this. And as soon as we pray, we expect an immediate answer. But so often, the Lord waits until ready to receive that answer. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples and also to us in his response is this, that the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit will be entrusted to those who can accept his authority over time. Let me say that again. The power of the Holy Spirit will be entrusted to those who can accept his authority over time. Because when we find ourselves in a desperate situation, we will talk to the Lord about Cairo's time. Okay, God, I need this to happen by the end of the month, right? You set a time and a, and a season for things. I can wait till the end of the month, Lord, for the new job, but not any longer, okay? You got till the 31st, right? But, but if we are able to trust him, understand that in the waiting time, we often see him do more than we would anticipate. There, there are situations, there's relationships that come to my mind where I've had to wait beyond the time that I thought was the best. I want an answer from God right away, but God wanted the best answer. And so when those answers did finally come, they, they weren't on my schedule, but they were better than I expected. There are times that I can look back on my life, and if I had got the answer earlier, it would have been the wrong answer. Are you with me today? Because the Lord not only knows what he's doing, he knows what he's doing. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said this, We are in danger of forgetting that we cannot do what we cannot do what God can do, and God will not do what we can do. Hear me. It's in the chronos. It's in the waiting that we do what we can do while we wait for God to do what only he can do in his timing and in his power. But understand this. The Holy Spirit is given for a very special purpose. Jesus makes it clear. You will receive power. Power. The, the Greek word there is dunamis, okay? It's where we, we get the word dynamite, right? The explosive power of the Holy Spirit is given specifically to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same supernatural power that was revealed in Jesus' own life. Now, you may ask, why do we need that power? John 14, verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is saying that he will continue to do what he did in his ministry, but now he's going to do it more. 
given for effectiveness in being witnesses. This is the Acts version of the Great Commission, and it has one important addition. We need the Holy Spirit to live as witnesses of the power of Jesus. We cannot do what Jesus has asked us to do without the power of the Spirit. John 15, 5, Jesus made it clear that without him we can do nothing. And so I want to encourage you today to stop worrying about when Jesus will return and start living as a witness of his transforming power in your life today. Amen. Show people by the way that you live what it would be like if Jesus was doing what you're doing, right? Now, the Greek word for witnesses is martyrium. That sound martyrate. It's where we get our word martyr because those who faithfully witness Jesus to others, especially in the early church, were often put to death for their faith. And, and church, I, I think we need to understand that, that we must be ready and willing to pay the ultimate cost as we put in the gospel. But, but we shouldn't miss the other application here. Each of us is to die to ourselves and, and become available to share through our lives and through our actions, what Christ means to us and to others. When we talk about the Spirit of God, understand this, there is an inflow of the Spirit of God in our lives, but there also ought to be an outflow or an overflow, if you will. And the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit is given in a constant flow as long as we are engaged in communicating and being witnesses to others. If you're following a note, I ever said this, we are called to be conduits and not containers. Called to be conduits and not containers. We're called, church, to be channels of the Holy Spirit, not holding tanks, right? Fill me up, God, and then we just hold on to it. I got have enough for, for next week, right? Understand this a flowing river will always purify itself. A flowing river will always purify its vessel. Swamps have inlets, but they don't have any outlets, right? The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is is uh, the body of water, it's the lowest elevation of a body of water on earth, meaning it has an inlet, but it has nowhere to flow out to. And so because of that, it, it cannot sustain life, right? It's got an inflow, but no overflow. And if we want the power of the Holy Spirit, church, to flow into us, but not out of us, we will not know the life of the Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit will not be squandered on us for very long if we refuse to be conduits of His grace as witnesses of the gospel. Christian life, I'll tell you this, it's going to become boring if all you do is take in, take in, take in, and you never allow the Holy Spirit to flow and reach you. The Holy Spirit's power is given to us. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit because our faith in Jesus Christ automatically puts us at odds with our culture. Even as Gloria shared today, right? Our faith in, in Christ puts us at odds with the culture around us. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Hebrews, we, we see a church that is trying to hide their witness in order to avoid persecution. And it is a temptation that we face today, right? We know, man, if I speak up, I, I'm going to be persecuted for it. If I say something, people are going to come after me. Because if we speak up and we speak the truth in a world of lies, it is going to cost us something. And the sad truth is many are not prepared to pay that price. I don't know if you're following the news, but, I mean, in Canada, it's basically illegal to be a Christian or to live by Christian values. Just this month, Canada placed what they call a ban on conversion therapy. It is illegal in Canada to counsel anyone who wishes to change their sexual orientation 
heterosexual. In other words, if someone's living in a homosexual lifestyle and they want help to get out of it and you counsel them or give them help in that, you can face five years in prison. Now, it's interesting because it only works in that direction. There's complete freedom to counsel anyone towards homosexuality. There's complete freedom to counsel anyone towards a transgender lifestyle. That you can do, but the law prohibits it the other way. Think about this. In a day when personal autonomy is being celebrated and promoted, the freedom to seek help to overcome homosexuality is outlawed in Canada. And if you don't think we're very far behind, just begin to do your research. Many states in the United States that are going the same direction. Increasingly, church, you need to understand this. Our faith in Jesus Christ, holding a biblical worldview that says, man, God defines his creation. Man doesn't get to self-identify it. God identifies his creation. God says who we are, and he's created us with a purpose. That worldview automatically puts you at odds with our culture today. And so Jesus says, here's the reality. You're going to go and you're going to be my witnesses. Underline that word, my. Circle that word, my. Pray. And understand this, we belong to him, church. We really have no right to promote our ourselves or our own agenda. No, we promote Jesus and his kingdom by how we live. We promote Jesus by our priorities, by our words, by our responses to others. You see, verse 8 is really a summary of the book of Acts. It begins with witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and it goes out to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember, the prophet Isaiah declared that Jesus would be a light to the nations. Yes, his, his earthly ministry never left Israel, but Jesus is now alive and well, and he's working through his body, the church, throughout the entire world. It is the church, and through the church, that Jesus becomes the light. In fact, Jesus emphasized in Matthew 24, 14, that his return wouldn't come until the good news of his salvation spread throughout the entire world. And here's the reality. It can happen in our lifetime. It can happen in our lifetime. At the beginning, the, the apostles were reluctant to leave Jerusalem. It was Philip who actually was the first to take the step to go to Samaria. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 8. And when he does, the Holy Spirit moves in such a way that he asks the other apostles, I need your help, right? It's persecution that finally drives the apostles out of Jerusalem and starts them on their missionary journey. And understand this today. If we won't obey God, he's going to help us obey him. Or he's going to raise up somebody else, right? He'll even raise up an enemy like Saul to become Paul, to spread the gospel to to Asia Minor and to Rome. And so the, the apostles become a great witness and they bring the light of Christ to the nations. But understand, almost every one of them was martyred for their faith. John records his, his own version of Great Commission, if you will. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Understand that just as Jesus came to do the will of the Father, as he lived as a witness of the Father, he died for our sins, so now we are sent to live as witnesses of Jesus. We're sent to share the message of mercy and forgiveness. Jesus was sent to do the will of Father, and now we're sent to do his will as well. John 3.17 tells us that Jesus wasn't sent to condemn, but to save. That's, that's a mission, church. It's a, it's a rescue mission. That we would lay down our lives at the feet of Jesus, just as Jesus 
laid down his life for the will of the Father. Oh, that that would be our desire to hear his instructions and to obey the will of God. Next week, we're jumping into Pentecost. We're jumping into Pentecost chapter 1. I encourage you to read chapter 2. If there's, there's different understandings, understand this, of, of what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But let me just say, if you are constantly struggling with the same sin over and over again, and you're failing and you're falling, you can call out to God and, and, and receive the, the power of the Spirit to overcome that sin and to be a witness. Because the reality is we all have weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. We, we will not be free of temptation in this lifetime. The world around us, the, the flesh, the enemy, he's not going to give up. But if you look and you see that your life is producing more fruit of the flesh than fruit of the Spirit, then just ask God. Ask him to take over every single area of your life. Let go of anything that you've been hanging on to that's keeping you from being discouraged. I love Hebrews 12 when it says, lay aside every weight, right? And the sin that so closely clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We can lay our lives at the feet of Jesus and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can give you a renewed passion to let God have every single part of your life so that you can be his witness. And this, again, doesn't mean that all the struggles necessarily end with the old nature. But what it means is that you will have the power to deny the flesh and yield to the Spirit of God. If you're seeking to be filled with power, just like Jacob wrestling with the angel, don't let go of God until he blesses you. Spend those times in his presence and God needs your spirit. God wants to give you the spirit, but first your hearts need to be open to let him bring. Look at verse 9. It says this. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I want you to put yourself in, in the disciples' sandals for just a moment, okay? Because they had seen their master crucified him on the cross. They watched him die. It was this enormous shock. It was this disappointment that they faced. And then they find out that he's come back to life and they're stunned, even though they shouldn't be because he told them what would happen, right? He appears at different times over a period of 40 days and just outside of Jerusalem, they're told to wait for the promise of the Father. He tells them that they're going to receive power to go into the whole world and share the good news and then he's lifted up. Picture this. He starts to rise and the clouds gather around. Sends into the clouds. Understand the clouds signifying the glory of God. Clouds surrounded Mount Sinai when God descended on the mountain. He gave the law to Moses. It was the cloud that led the Jews through the wilderness. It settled over the tent of meeting whenever Moses would go and talk to God. Revelation 17 tells us that when Jesus returns, he is he's coming in the clouds. And we're going to ascend and be caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. It is a picture of the glory of God. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here they are, they're staring up at the sky, and two angels appear and say, Okay, guys, it's time. 
concerned at this time. Yes, we are to desire Christ appearing, to desire his second coming. But until that day comes, we ought to be busy doing what he's told us to do. We are to make the best of the time we have because the days are evil. Yes, I believe that Christ will return. Why do I believe that? Because he said he would do it. But, but I also know that every prophecy of the first coming was fulfilled in great detail. And so it would be extremely foolish of me to think that the prophets only got the details of his first coming right, but not the second right. Yes, Jesus will return. And when he comes, he will come to reign. And at that time, he's going to transform our earthly bodies into glorious heavenly bodies. At that time, he is going to finish the work that he started in us. And he, we will rule and reign to imagine that day, right? How amazing it's going to be when Jesus comes for his bride and that trumpet sounds. At the same time, his wrath is going to be poured out on his enemies. But for those who are in him, we will be in the clouds as well to be with the Lord and proclaim to his church there is a glorious future that awaits us. But right now, let's not get caught just in the your heart even right now for absolutely anything that might stand in the way 